1: Welcome back to Seth Liebson Show, Friday, July 9th, 2021. It's my favorite part of my Friday where we get to check in with Pete Peterson. He is the Dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and he goes through academics and the culture with us on these Fridays. Pete, it's great to have you back. I've been looking forward to this all day.
0: Me too, Seth. Always a great way to end the week.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, before I ask you about things I told you I wanted to ask you about, Pete, <laughs> yes. we're huge Larry Elder fans here, and I know yeah. you uh, last were on telling me you were not thinking of running for governor of California. Correct. And since that time, he said he seriously is. I got to tell you, it's something that excites me a whole lot, and I'm wondering what the view from uh, your perch is.
0: Well, it's uh – as I've also said before, we we have uh, Kevin Faulconer, yep. the mayor uh-huh. of uh, former mayor of San Diego, yep. is visiting professor with us. That's I actually right. spent a little right. li- little time with him yesterday, uh, just checking in on how things are doing. And uh, but of course, I am a big Larry Elder fan as well. Um, at the same time, I I think that it actually benefits uh, Republicans to have known. Um, Quantities uh, running for uh, running in this race for the recall, um, as we've discussed before. What's so unique about the recall effort is that it is uh, going to be the only question on the ballot before California's voters. Uh, that date has now been selected uh, in the second week of September, um, and in that there are only two questions on that ballot. Number one, do you vote to recall the sitting governor? Yes or no. Uh And then the second question is uh, if, if yes, who do you vote to uh, replace? And if that first question isn't answered uh, affirmatively at 50% plus one, uh, the second question becomes irrelevant. And in that there are, a variety of reasons which we've discussed why California voters across the political spectrum, um, have gotten signed that uh, made the requisite one and a half million or so signatures to qualify for, for the ballot. Um, and they will be voting in that affirmative in the first question, but there are people that will turn out to vote only if they see a, uh, a name on that second ballot question that will prompt them to make that recall decision. I and, totally and agree.
1: I think that's exactly right. So whether it's a Kevin Falconer or someone like yep. Larry, they need to see what the alternative potential is, don't they?
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so while, again, I'm I'm supportive of, of Kevin's candidacy, I'm a huge fan of Larry. I think to the broader issue of the recall, yeah. more known, credible candidates running uh, on the Republican side, and of course all the names will be in the hopper, so to speak, together for that second question, um, the better it portends for the recall effort.
1: One of the, uh, if I can switch just a little bit, Pete, one mm-hmm. of the things I love about you is you bring up names I haven't thought about in 40 years. <laughs> and you just, you tweeted the other day, yesterday maybe, that you're reviewing a paper or a discussion about Paulo Ferrer. Oh yeah. my gosh! And the roots yeah. of education policy. I oh. <laughs> haven't oh. seen that name in 40 years, Pete. But here's what the are thing, you doing? Seth. No,
0: Seth. Here's <laughs> that is, as with so many things that we do here at the policy school. I, I suppose
1: understand. you, if you were, I suppose if you were mean like I am, <laughs> you would say, "Well, Seth, um, you know, we talk about Thomas Jefferson. He's a little older than that."
0: Right? <laughs> right. Well, and okay. for the same reason, right? <laughs> is that ideas have consequences uh, yes. as, as we both know. And yes. it it amazes me as we are in the midst of these debates about CRT and what's being taught in not only our nation's colleges and universities, but, but what's being taught in our K twelve systems that more conservatives don't know who Paolo Frere yeah, is.
1: Yeah, no, that's right.
0: Um, Because much of the current debates are grounded Mm -hmm. in the philosophy of folks like John Dewey and Frere and and fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. And I really do believe, and I know you and I are of a similar mind on this, that unless and until you know the foundational thinkers of uh, political and economic philosophy – uh, you don't really know what you're up against when those debates manifest themselves in real time. And so, yeah, that's why we're we're putting together a new four-part video series on these foundational thinkers in, in educational philosophy because they couldn't be more relevant. Um, you, you're
1: the only ones doing it that I know of. It's a great thing that you're doing this because I don't think people quite grasp it's not their fault. There's been a lot of confusion mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of obscurity. But I don't think people quite grasp the intellectual roots of this pro- progressivism in our education, how deep it runs, how long it's been around.
0: It has. And so, you know, Ferrer, Ferrer would be the uh, Brazilian yeah. educator, yeah. Uh, political philosopher, yeah. and wrote an important book that is taught today in many schools of education called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Right. And it's in that book and many of his other writings that he views and describes education as really as a means of preparing activists, um, that the status quo almost ipso facto needs to be changed. And so education is a way of preparing activists to overturn the past Mm -hmm. and how relevant is
1: yeah that, yeah no perfectly so perfectly, yeah. so, I go blue in the face, quoting these things, uh Mark's notes on Feuerbach that the point of a yeah. philosopher has been to understand history now it 's to change it um yeah. Frere uh, let's take him for a second if memory serves, it's been a while, as I say, it was fun to see mm-hmm. you bringing up um, his 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 work um and and trying to understand it, but uh, 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 if memory serves, he wasn't just an influential educational author or pedagogist or what have you, he he was more than, than a Marxist. This was a guy, as I recall, who was a fan of Mao Zedong. I mean, this was a guy oh, yeah. who thought that Franz Fanon didn't go far enough, as I recall.
0: No, that's right. That's right. No, he was he was definitely supportive of the communist and Marxist revolutions uh, that were happening around the mid 20th century, and again, grounded in that perspective that um, activists and revolutionaries that it was frankly the job of education, uh, particularly elementary school education, to be preparing these future revolutionaries, because that really is what was necessary. Life was about revolution. Politics were about revolution. And so again, anything about history or tradition or the past that could be seen as positive, grounding, connecting one to another, uh, needed to be overturned. And so that, um, again, and and again, the fact that these books, while 40, 50, 60 years old, are being taught today in schools of education. um, But again, I, I don't think most conservatives, much less most parents, Understand that what's happening in their classrooms now really does grow out of these philosophies and and view of what education is for.
1: Uh, Which is. Maybe curious as to why I, some of my listeners, as to why I spend so much time on it. And I'll tell you why. Because if you spend enough time exposing this stuff, as I've been doing for a very long time, Pete, mm-hmm. when people say, well, what should I do? What should I do? I've, I've, Bill, my producer, anyone who knows me will tell you I've always, my first answer is always, always, always run for school board. I can't tell yeah. you how delighted I have been to see the last two, three months of parents engaging. In school board activity, whether it's showing up, whether it's running, whether it's speaking literal truth to power, uh, this is where the change in America is going to take place. This is where the revolution in America has taken place.
0: Well, and again, once again, Seth, you know the the conservative focus. And some might call this the the branch of what is what is known affectionately as conservatism Inc uh-huh. has been focused on federal and national politics that 's right that's right but as we've talked about so many times, really where the issues are being uh, discussed, debated, finalized that affect our everyday lives are in school boards yep. and city council meetings and state capitals. And I think if there's been any benefit to COVID, it's been that growing realization by Americans that policy is happening at very local level. You
1: bet. Yeah. It woke a lot of parents up, hopefully creating a new kind of better wokeness. I'm Seth Liebsen. He's Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. It's a different kind of school, as you can tell. Who's on their faculty? People running for governor to replace The current governor, that's who's on their faculty. You want to learn public policy from the movers and shakers? Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I'm Seth. He's Pete. We'll be right back. Everything everything old is new again. Uh, (laughs) Pete Peterson (laughs) of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy is uh, explaining uh, the origins of educational progressivism by uh, teaching what the progressive taught. And I'm playing Chuck Mangione, so it's all it's a the, the '70s are back, Pete. <laughs> the '70s are. are back. They
0: are. They are in ways that are not good. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. Well. <laughs> yes. Um. One of the things I wanted to raise with you, Pete, um, if I can, and it all really comes back to a, to I think the same place was a column you and I were both finding kind of uniquely different um, uh, and that was Peggy Noonan's column today the culture war is a leftist offense really kind of interesting this culture war business it's also a phrase I hadn't heard in a while it's been brought back mostly I had thought as a as a criticism or battering ram, if you will, against Republicans. That's always seems to be, I wish Republicans wouldn't or the Republicans shouldn't engage in these culture wars or exploiting culture wars. Um, You see a lot of this in our opposition to critical race theory. You see Randy Weingarten talking about us engaging in culture wars. Fact is, they started it and we're just fighting, aren't we? I mean, isn't it one side decided to make war and the other side accepted it, like the Civil War?
0: Well, it certainly is evidenced by the data that Peggy points out in in the piece from Kevin Drum, which analyzes attitudes by self-described conservatives and progressives across an array of issues, and that survey data shows uh, pretty conclusively that the left has moved quite further left, as uh, the right has moved only slightly to the right. Um, you know that that great reagan line which said you know i didn't leave the democratic mm-hmm. party it left mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. and so the point that noonan well actually kevin drum raises is 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 the democratic party in moving uh, further to the left leaving that moderate middle that that new deal democrat that um, by and large, middle and lower middle class Democrat um, because of these uh, so-called culture war issues. And I have to say, in not only reading the Noonan piece, but also the Kevin Drum piece, I'm, I really do think that we're getting a glimpse of that right here in California. Uh, when you look at the fact of the, the recall effort, And whether it's successful or not, I think the the jury is is out on that. But the fact that we're even seeking to recall a governor in Newsom who had won by a landslide only three years ago, um, and the fact that the signatures on that recall petition were not all Republican signatures as much as Newsom wants to paint this as some right-wing conspiracy, there are a lot of middle-class Democrat parents that are outraged at what happened with the lockdown of schools, of uh, small business owners that lost their businesses due to the lockdowns. And, um, and now we're discovering, of course, what's being taught in the schools in new ways because of the lockdowns. I think all these factors are contributing um, to what Noonan surmises is a possible tectonic shift in the coalitions of the two parties. And I, I think we're seeing some of that right here in California.
1: I wonder if there is a racial component that might favor conservatives too, Pete, in this sense. Um, so California's put, New- California's put Newsom in office by a landslide three years ago. Uh, they um, They overachieve in getting the numbers needed to recall him. And somewhere in between there namely last November Californians passed was it proposition 16 i think it was was it proposition right. 16 which maintained the policy maintained the policy of not judging by race which maintained the policy of Racial neutrality, particularly in educational admissions, right? There's that's something right. going on under the what is it under under uh, the, There's something going on in California, and it's not always clear to me that it's um, it's 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 gold, it's gold brick leftism.
0: Well, that's right, and I, I, again, I think that when you look at these very much um, types, these types of issues that really do affect families, Mm -hmm. uh, that really do impact the middle class and the lower middle class, Uh, the Democrats here in California are just on the wrong side Mm -hmm. of these issues. And moving further to the left, you know, we've talked about that split that I've described as the beer and pretzel Democrats versus the wine and cheese Democrats. Uh And that's essentially what comes out in Kevin Drum's writing, right, that the White, upper-middle class, educated, who had been Republicans, are moving to the left, mm-hmm. or those that were already in the Democratic Party are moving further to the left in, in their surveys. But those who were in the moderate left, uh, the kinds of folks that we're talking about as the beer and pretzel Democrats, uh, they're essentially politically homeless. And it's going to be up to a, a political organization of some sort, uh, to really make a play for those voters, um, but I, I see those as being increasingly uh, available, if you will, here in California.
1: How much of a determining factor of the potential change of leadership is um, is based not on the political homeless but the literal homeless?
0: Mm. No, that's that's very much. Uh, again another. because I think issue. that involves
1: a lot of these cultural issues too, quite frankly, having to it do does. with family drugs uh crime uh, mental health uh, all well, this, and not all only
0: that thing. but the responses to them yeah. right yeah. Um, back to uh, former mayor Falconer yeah. I mean one of the major issues he's running on is on the issue of homelessness. Good. He was mayor of the only city in California that saw a drop in their homelessness population. There you go. Um, over the last five years. and he would argue that that is because of their response was a mix of, if you will, carrots and sticks that there were services that were going to be provided at the same time you were required um, to take advantage of them. Being able to live on the sidewalk was not going to be a possibility in San Diego. And that is not how cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, have approached the issue.
1: Pete, there was something else in the Wall Street, in Peggy's piece, Peggy Newnan's piece in the Wall Street Journal, that kind of moved me. And, and I wonder, it's, it's, it's a little difficult to talk about, but I, I think you'll be familiar with the point I'm trying to make, and then I got to go to break, so maybe you could respond after we come back from the break. But it's this other socialist, she quotes, um, uh, David Shore who is admitting that there's a lot of black Americans, he says, who, quote, don't actually buy into a lot of these intellectual theories of racism. And it kind of dawned on me, you know, you think of your uh, Paulo Ferrer's, you think of your Jean Baudrillard's, you think of all your basic postmodern writers, um, you know, Paul de Man, uh, who, am I, uh, who, who am I leaving out? Jacques Derrida. These are all European whites who have given us this CRT crud. It's kind of an interesting thing. I made the point. I may be wrong. I'd love your thoughts on it when we come back. Maybe this is more of a white thing than a black thing. All this CRT thing—I think it could very well be. Even the French are now afraid of it. (laughs) They created the Frankenstein philosophers. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let me have your response when we come back. He's Pete Peterson. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Such a treat on Fridays to have Pete Peterson with us. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, one of my favorite academic institutions. He's one of my favorite academics. Pete, I was, I was raising a question. It's a little difficult, but maybe you can appreciate where I'm coming from. That In this Peggy Noonan piece we're talking about in the Wall Street Journal and the culture war, she quotes, quotes a socialist, a David Shore, talking about certain blacks that don't actually, quote, don't actually buy into a lot of these intellectual theories of racism. They often have a very different conception of how to help the black or Hispanic community than liberals do. And I was just thinking with, you know, a few exceptions here and there, a lot of this, you know, comes really from the critical studies that were handed to us a generation before Derek Bell, Jacques Derrida, Paul Demont, Jean Baudrillard, um, Paulo yeah. Freire. These, these are all as white and European, Brazilian, as you can get.
0: Yeah, they are. And, you know, I think about George Bush's famous phrase, of soft bigotry yeah. of low expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're witnessing some of these incredible videos we're seeing from Um, school board meetings where we're seeing uh, African-American parents Mm -hmm. really hold forth and say, you're not going to treat my child any differently um, than anyone else. We are going to keep and maintain the same expectations of my kids (laughs) as you will for any other. And we are not going to proclaim a, a victimhood mindset for anyone. Now, Again, we we talked about before we had Glenn Lowry here speaking yep. to the importance of social capital. Mm-hmm. And we are, I think, should be very much mindful of policies that will increase social capital uh, for all Americans, particularly African-Americans. At the same time... Um, these kinds of policies ensure is seeing this in the survey data. You know, he's quoted there in the piece just to come straight out and says, if they continue to polarize on these racial issues, he said, and I quote, we're going to lose a lot of votes. And again, we have seen certainly in the 2016 and 2020 national elections where uh, votes out of the uh, Hispanic community certainly um, increased for, uh, Trump, um, for African-American males, they increased. Uh, for Trump, still uh, low double digits, but but an increase. Uh, but I am, again, seeing it here in California, where you're really beginning to see uh, a questioning by those um, in various ethnic communities um, on these kinds of cultural issues, especially as they intersect with education. That's right. Uh, are we doing right by our kids and uh, and parents of course want the best for their kids and they want them to be treated equally and uh, and so i i think especially on the school closure issue uh which we saw the private school kids all got to go go to school this past year of course uh, but those in the public education school system uh did not and so when you hear Randy Weingarten hold forth and she's also quoted of course in, in the Noonan piece, um, you know, the parents of kids in the, in the public school system are, are going to be rightfully angry about it.
1: Yes, that's right, Pete. And think it it, it just, it it makes me think a little bit back to the early and mid nineties and what we might call the school choice wars. Uh, he's now on our state Supreme court, but back in those days, uh, Clint Bullock at the Institute for Mm -hmm. Justice realized a long time ago that the people suffering the most without choice were – Generally, persons of color in in urban and urban communities, <clears throat> and he worked very hard, particularly starting in Chicago and Milwaukee, as I recall, working with minority parents to clamor for school choice and The thing I learned about this, listening to all these parents who were pulling their hair hair out for better education options for their children, you know the refrain we kept hearing I kept hearing uh, from a lot of these parents is. We just want the good stuff. We just want yeah. what, the, what, what the kids in the AP classes are getting. We just right. want to get what the white kids are getting. That's all yeah. they wanted. They, they, they were not asking for some kind of special, weird, odd, European, Harvard, law school, subtextual education that wasn't going to help with anything except you know some Ph.D. thesis. They just wanted a damn good education. That's all they cared about. And that's boy, right. the pushback, you know where it came from? I got it too with this other break. I'm sorry, Pete. Yep. But the pushback was from white liberals. Yeah, wasn't black liberals. It was white liberals. It's a really sad situation. And that's why I think it's all about education, which is why I think it's all about the culture. I'll get your further thoughts when we come right back. I'm Seth Leaveson. He's Pete Peterson. To check out what they got over at Pepperdine School of Public Policy, check them out online at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Taking Pete Peterson back to his days at Studio Fifty Four with songs like <laughs> that, you know, Pete. Pete, we um, we don't plan what the commercials are it's all on a rotation and you probably heard as i heard hugh hewitt talking and promoting uh lon he chen who's running for yeah. office in california dawned on me he's one of your boys too isn't he he, he was a scholar is. at pepperdine here as yeah. a
0: as a visiting professor yeah. lonnie's a friend yeah. and, and we've talked for the last few months about this perspective and now real candidacy so very excited about him running for statewide office here in California. That's
1: what you guys are training for at Pepperdine, and I love it. Uh, Pete, I had the occasion to interview one of these parents you were talking about this week. Uh, one of the women whose speech to the school board in Florida went sort of viral. Uh, her name was uh, Keisha. Keisha and I uh, were on the, uh, on, on the show yesterday, and she made a really interesting <clears throat> point. She was talking about – she's an African-American woman, and she was talking about – uh, what critical race theory in the Florida schools means to her daughter, which is that it teaches that her daughter is an inferior person. That's what she said. We are teaching that there are superior and inferior races here. And the damage that that will do to my children in the future is incalculable. And it had me kind of in memory of one of the parts in Brown. Board of Education in 54 was actually about the psychological effects of segregation. And it seems to me we're repeating all of that all over again. We are unlearning everything it took us so long and so hard to learn. That's how I want to put it.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Seth. Uh, and, and again, we, we are looking for equal treatment, and uh, that very much is is what is at stake here in this debate about what's being taught in the schools and as we've talked about before you know covid not only became an issue in and of itself as it relates to education because of the closing of schools particularly here in california but it also provided this opportunity for parents to get new insights into what's actually being taught Yeah. yeah. and so it was this this double-sided element to it that I think we don't yet know. I was speaking just this morning to a a leading education reform activist uh, activist and and policymaker, and uh, she said, we don't yet know what the landscape is going to look like in the fall as far as students actually reporting to public schools. Uh, The growth of the homeschool movement, you can't imagine another set of circumstances that would have Prompted more parents uh, to to consider or reconsider uh, where they're sending their kids in the fall, and uh, I think we're going to we 're going to see some amazing data coming back to us in September about what those enrollments actually look like
1: well what 's interesting to me about that point, Pete, and I hope you 're right by the way. Um, but what's interesting me, uh, to me about that is the aggressiveness which over the last two weeks you saw the, large, large, the two large te- national teachers unions engage in, first the NEA <clears throat> and then Randy Weingarten this week with the American Federation of Teachers pushing so hard on this stuff and so aggressively. You can always count on Randy to be a little more aggressive than the <laughs> NEA, and she certainly okay. was calling these parents bullies. Um, And, of course, us cultural warriors. I thought it was odd how much they doubled down on this stuff. But I think it might be in context to their greatest fear, which you just outlined, which is come September. What are they going to do with shrinking membership and shrinking students? Shrinking because of them.
0: Right. And of course, so much of school funding relates uh, is is designated on a per student basis. Right. Right. That the funds that come out of state coffers or local coffers are are really uh, contingent on uh, the the number of students that you enroll. And, you know, to that point, you know, I think that there are uh, we're, we're going to see some real creative moves made on the parts of parents in accessing uh, new online curriculum that's that may be provided outside of the district but is in keeping with where the parents are either from a content perspective or a faith perspective and frankly I think what many of these Uh, education leaders fear the most is, frankly, civic engagement, citizen involvement. Of course. Parental
1: involvement, right?
0: That's right. And that can happen in a number of different ways. You know, it's not just at the school board meetings. It's actually parents stepping forward and when possible saying, you know, I'm going to do this. Or I'll (laughs)
1: stand in the classroom if the teacher is afraid to because of COVID, right? There's any number of things. I always thought, by the way, I've always said... The f- You know, there, there's three or four or five criteria I use to judge whether a school is good or not. The first one is always how much do they welcome parental input. Mm-hmm. That's always been my house- – in yeah. other words, how secure are they in their own feelings and views of pedagogy, that they're willing to welcome constructive uh, help or criticism from the real experts who are the parents?
0: No, that's a great criteria, Seth. And, I, and I, the
1: I, Randy know. thing is so opposite that. It's so odd because she's talking about – the curriculum as 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 theirs I don't know yep. if you saw it's a very odd speech it's as if the parents aren't a factor at all it's as if there's such a paternalism between the teachers union and and the purpose of their jobs, which is to teach children, that they want to—they—they they think that the children are theirs. They don't think that the parents. You can't—you can't escape well, that from does reading that her take speech. that
0: us back to? Where yeah, did, that takes us right back yeah. to to Dewey yeah. and prayer. Right, right, right. right. That they that, that these are not your kids. Right. These are these are kids that need to be shaped. That's and right. Parents and tradition and faith and those kinds of things that hold students back from their real identity. That that needs to be taken away and and now inculcated in new ways uh, by education systems. So once again, these these foundational thinkers as it relates to education. I mean, that's uh, Weingarten is essentially channeling Dewey and Frere when she has that perspective that the kids are ours.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a reason the kibutzes or the kibbutzim in Israel don't exist anymore because they tried mm. this. It didn't work. You take kids away from their parents and you make them, a, a, you know, a proxy or, a, or a, a, a paternalism of the state. It doesn't work. Right. <laughs> People end up That's not right. liking that. Not here in America anywhere anyway, and certainly not in France now that they've unleashed this Frankenstein. Pete Peterson, right. thank you for being such a tonic. I appreciate you so much. Great to be with you, Seth. God bless you. We'll talk soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. In my continual quest to bring back Frederick Douglass, I I am just fascinated by this July 5th, 1875 speech of his. It's the gift that keeps on giving. He's talking about organizations raising money on behalf of the black, he calls them the Negro community. He writes, money must be solicited in the Negro's name, but it will not do for him to know exactly what becomes of it. These men have studied the science of begging all their lives, the people raising money on behalf of the uh, black population. These men have studied the science of begging all their lives and have attained the highest perfection. They manufacture circulars by the bushel and load down the mails with their appeals. They have got the names and addresses of all the giving men of the country. This begging class is mainly composed of broken-down preachers without pulpits, Lawyers without clients, professors without chairs, editors without journals, and the like. Men who fail in everything but managing money given for the benefit of the black man. In order to obtain revenue to carry out what they call their work, they draw the most distressing picture picture of the black man's character and condition. They keep the public mind constantly upon the poor, wretched Negro, and thus damn the whole race in a large measure of contempt, small degree of pity, if not contempt. Hence, we now and here denounce and repudiate all such shams and call upon the American people to do the same. Boy, I wish I had that last June. Boy, I wish Frederick Douglass' speeches were easier to find online. Boy, do I think the fact that they aren't is deliberate. But we know what we'll be reading exclusively next summer. Next time, someone wants to tell us about Douglass in 1852, we'll tell him about Douglass in 1875. After he learned a little, saw a little more, and after the majority of America, of whites, fought the minority of American whites to save the blacks. I'm Seth. Until Monday, God bless you all. Class dismissed.